Morocco along for the second time today. And a lot of people, by the way, are concerned about elections. We put up a post earlier on on Twitter and we asked what people were concerned about when politicians came to the front door. What was the number one question they were going to ask them? We gave them a choice of immigration, health care, housing crisis or housing in general. And many other things, including education as well. The number one thing that people picked was immigration, because I think immigration affects everything. It affects healthcare, because, of course, the more people that come into the country, the less opportunity you have to get a GP. The more people that come into the country, the less opportunity you have to get a house. So everybody's thinking to themselves, well, look, I'll sort this out next year, because, of course, next year we're hoping to get a general election. If not, by the very latest, February 2024, or February 25, will be the latest that we'll have a general election. But my view is it'll be sometimes towards the end of summer next year, after the local elections in June. And then, of course, you've got the European elections as well. So who are you going to vote for? Everybody says, well, what's the point? There's nobody different to vote for. They're all just speaking out of the same, they're all, or as I say, they're all cheeks of the same arse. And they really are, because let's be clear, Sinn Féin has to be the worst opposition in the history of the state. They say very little apart from agree with the government on most occasions, or say more or less the same thing. Labour, well, they've kind of disappeared altogether because they come up with some fantasy idea that they're going to build a million houses. You might have said 10 million houses. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, more of that, more of the same. Well, really, do people want that? And the Green Party, they were never really wanted in there in the first place, really, were they, to be honest with you? They scraped in only because it was convenient for the government to form a government. With only 2% of the national vote, nobody was really interested. But there are other parties, and we've spoken to AIN2 in the past, and of course, the brand new party as well, uh, Ireland or Republic, what's it, oh, the Independent Ireland, of course, uh, that Michael Collins's party as well, that's a new party as well. And of course, you've got the Farmers, the Farmers Alliance, they're coming together, and you've got lots of independents. But another party as well that gets quite a bit of interest is the Irish Freedom Party. And joining me to get a little bit more information from the Irish Freedom Party is Michael Leahy. And Michael is a uh, candidate for Ireland South as well, and chairman and spokesman of the party. Uh, good afternoon to you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Well, firstly, let's talk about the Irish Freedom Party, where they came from. How long are they around for people who haven't heard of them, maybe before? I know a lot of people have voted for them, but they haven't been around for too long. So when, when did they start? Okay, we started in the year 2020. Um, many people were becoming increasingly concerned about attacks on freedom and attacks on liberty within the country. Uh, I think it's also fair to say that the party has a basis as a Eurosceptic party. Uh, we are quite concerned about the overweening power of the European Union in our national affairs, and we believe it's time to uh, at least regenerate or re recapture some of the sovereignty uh, that Ireland has undoubtedly lost over, over the years of membership of the European Union. Um, and certainly one of our main aims is to, to start repatriating sovereignty. We know that leaving the European Union a direct Brexit would be extremely difficult to achieve, and we've always said that. Um, I would don't it, think would it be whatever about it being difficult to leave? An air exit has been mentioned in the past, of course, straight yeah. after the Brexit result. A lot of people were talking about air exit. Would it be mm -hmm. beneficial for Ireland? Because there are two ways of looking at that. Yes, it could be beneficial because we have our sovereignty. We keep our gas and oil. Of course, if we want to start drilling off the coast of Cork or the coast of Kerry, should I say. And, um, you know, of course, our farmers would have their fields back again. So, but, well, mind you, with the Green Party, they probably wouldn't. But would it be beneficial to Ireland to leave the EU? Uh, like the, I think that the, the question of framing it in terms of leaving the EU, we, we, we do have to set that aside for a little bit. It's a very, very long-term process if we do ever decide to leave the European Union. 
we're in a much weaker position than Britain in that we are part of the currency union, and that makes it much more much more difficult for us. Uh, I think the fact that Britain left and has seems to be getting on okay, okay, there are certain problems, but they have, everything hasn't collapsed as was predicted for them. That gives us certain options. They are, after all, still our nearest uh, trading partner and one of our biggest trading partners. But as far as I'm concerned, I think what we've got to look at now is so many countries within the European Union are beginning to see that the present structures of the European Union are simply not working. Personally, I believe that what we should be moving towards is an abolition of the European Union in its present form uh, and a coming together of the existing states of the European Union with a view to forming a proper uh, economic bonding, a proper economic series of treaties that would be a benefit, of benefit to all the European countries. Now, remember, when the European Union, as it is now started, when we joined, it was a European economic community. It was simply a trading bloc and very little else. But gradually, over the years, it has assumed more and more power. And it has, it, 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 this phrase that you use of ever closer union seems to be unending. And there seems to be no end to that process. And it's, it seems to want to create a unitary state where the individual states will have very little power. I, I was going to say that, but I, I think the aim of the, of the EU, rather than going back to the European common market and the EEC, I think the aim of the European Union, the EU, certainly is to form one state and we no longer will be Ireland, we'll be just that all seems Europe. And I don't think many Irish people agree with that. I think trying to keep a level of sovereignty is always a good thing and always protecting mm. our borders and everything else, which we'll come to in a few minutes. But the thing about it is, I don't think people notice that we're slowly but surely handing over our sovereignty um, to the EU. We're losing more and more power over our own country over the last, certainly over the last five or six years, and particularly over the last two years, we're losing more and more. Mm -hmm. Nobody seems to be pulling the brake and saying, stop. Well, I, I was at a conference in Kenya there two weeks ago, you were at the same conference, and many of the parliamentarians there, European parliamentarians, they're of exactly the same mindset as we in the Irish Freedom Party, that far too much power has gone to the centre of the European Union, and we're talking about parties like the um, Italian Patriots, the uh, Alternative for Deutschland, and various other parties throughout the European Union. They're at present, constitute some 20% of the representation in the European Parliament. I have no doubt that after the next European elections, next June, which I'll be contending, that group will be approximately 40% of the European Parliament and will be by far the biggest bloc. One of the reasons Irish people are terrified of the notion of leaving the European Union is it's always framed in that narrow sense Ireland being isolated and the rest of Europe continuing as it was. I don't think that's necessarily what needs to happen. Many, many countries are concerned about the overweening power of Brussels, the lack of democracy, the lack of accountability. We see Ursula von der Leyen tracing all over the world, making absolutely ridiculous statements about the present conflict in Gaza, uh, without any need for her ever to come back to an electorate and be elected. This is wrong. This is not democratic. This is not in accordance with traditional European values, and people are rightly increasingly concerned about it, not just in Ireland, but in so many other European countries as well. Now, we've got to stop framing this debate in terms of Ireland leaving and being left on its own. That's not what, what, what we need to concern ourselves with. We need to concern ourselves first and foremost with completely reformed European Union. And if that doesn't happen, we need to get out.
uh, because I think it's, it really is going nowhere. It's okay. becoming increasingly totalitarian, completely aggressive towards freedom of speech and democracy. And we do not need to be part of that. Well, we've seen that with the digital no. treaty. We've seen that recently with the digital treaty. But getting back to the Irish yeah. Freedom Party, and I suppose let's focus on you know what's closer to home and what needs to be done in Ireland to fix the problems we primarily have here. And I mentioned at the start there that we put up a Twitter poll about people's concerns. Mm-hmm. I'll come to the number one in a second. But the main yeah. concerns are the cost of living, housing. Mm-hmm. There are some yeah. people who have concerns about climate change, but I think it's actually very small. I think it's completely over-exaggerated by the way the yes, people that have yes, concerns. I think it's generally young people who are quite easily brainwashed by a lot of the narrative mm-hmm. that goes around at the moment. Uh, green taxes concern people, healthcare concerns people, education concerns people. So let's take one thing at a time. We look at healthcare. Yeah. We have a huge problem yeah. with nurses and doctors being educated in Ireland, paid for by the tax fair to be educated in Ireland, and then leaving mm-hmm. the country. How do, we stop, how, do we, how do we stop bleeding professionals? Well, I think we have to look after our own people and we have to make sure that it's right. There are nurses in Australia at the moment who are very anxious to come back to Ireland and they're not being facilitated. And at the same time, uh, Michal Martin was talking about the fact that they employed an additional 20,000 people in the health service in an interview we did uh, about two weeks ago. How many of those 20,000 are actually Irish people? If you look at the number of PPS numbers which were issued in Ireland in the year of 2022, uh, 305,000 PPS numbers were issued. And of that, 69,000 were issued to Irish people. That's 22.5%. Why on earth is that happening? We are, as you say, we are producing enough healthcare professionals to cater for our needs, but we're not keeping them in this country. And one of the reasons is it's easier for the health board to employ somebody from abroad. They placed the moratorium on hiring Irish people, on hiring people in the health board, but that moratorium does not apply to recruitment from abroad. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't make this up. It makes absolutely no sense from the point of view of the welfare and the long-term welfare of this country. It's almost as if government agencies have been deliberately told to replace the Irish population with people from outside. But, but uh, when they say that the healthcare, but the healthcare system has been a mess for 20 years, since Michal Martin was Minister for Health back in 2002, mm-hmm. and I've been talking about it, it's been a mess. Yeah. Ever since it stopped being the regional hospitals, it's been a mess. I mean, we've yeah. just, we're spending billions on it. It's never been a case of money, by the way, between 16 and 20 billion per year being thrown at it. And you've got people running around with folders in their hand doing absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, we don't have a nurse, nurses and doctors who are actually doing all the hard work. I mean, yeah. but there is a limit. See, the problem is, I find... With Irish nurses and doctors, the grass is greener on the other side. I mean, they have better potential for promotion, um, to see the world, exam- ex- for example, even in the NHS, they have better potential and they have better promises over there. Isn't that going yeah, to be the I'm reason not, they're going to leave? Yeah. No, I, I think you make a very good point. It's, it's very interesting, actually. The health boards are now talking about going back to from the HSC to the regional model, which they were some time ago. And I would imagine before long more to maybe back to the county council model, which they were mm. 40 years well, they were ago. Run, well, they were certainly uh, run better. Yeah, it could well be. It could well be that under the county council model, under the county manager, the county manager knew every penny that every doctor in the county was earning, and it, it, it was quite a good system. Um, but, you know, we, we have created these very complex administrative structures for our health system. And you're right, we don't look after the frontline people. We don't look after the doctors and the nurses. Why are there nurses out in Sydney demonstrating because they want to go back to Ireland, but they can't be facilitated in doing so, while we're importing massive number, massive number of nurses from various other countries? Why is that happening? We have to start looking at that, but our government will not look at that specifically because they're afraid of being accused of being racist. It's quite extraordinary, but the first priority of any government must be to look after its own people. 
I would, you would imagine it. so, but if anybody actually even says that, even on my show, we've had complaints about people saying that on the radio as well, you know, look after the Irish first. If you even suggest mm-hmm. that, you're accused of being some sort of racist, just for saying it's it. Ex- it's ex- every country must look after the welfare and the interests of its own people, whether it's from the point of view of security or from the point of view of economic development. Charity begins at home, the basic biblical construct. You look after your, your, your own people, your own family first. That's a natural human instinct. Everybody feels that. You must look after your own relatives first. You must look after your own kings and your spirit and your, 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 your nation first. It's, it's, it's not natural to, to, to think that her first obligation is to outsiders. Certainly, I believe that we okay. must be compassionate to anybody who's genuinely in need. But our first priority must be to ensure a stable uh, country here and the welfare of our own people. Okay, we're watching the waiting lists, of course, go up over 1.2 million at this stage of people waiting for surgeries, operations, or daycare, yes. or day wards, or whatever it is. Look, we know part mm-hmm. of the reason for that is a massive increase in population of over 200,000 people in the last two years. But let's mm-hmm. move on. I'll come back to that in a second. Let's go to climate policy. Now, the farmers are being yes. decimated at the moment uh, with climate mm-hmm. policy. Citizens are being decimated with taxes that yeah. are going on fuels, oils, gas. And yeah. um, I believe it's a fake economy when we talk about the price of, of energy, fossil fuels at the moment. And that's because people are not investing in fossil fuels or refineries mm-hmm. anymore because they're being pushed into sustainable energy. Where do the Irish Freedom Party stand when it comes to climate change? Look, I, we are very, very sceptical of the whole climate alarmist uh, narrative. Uh, I think you will find very few credible scientists who will claim or who will state uh, that the world is facing an existential crisis. The only people who, st- in, in regards to climate, the only people who state that are politicians. Uh, yes, there are changes taking place in the climate, and there always have been changes taking place in the climate. But the suggestion that this is due to excessive use of carbon in the atmosphere is simply false. It's point 0.04% of the total atmosphere is carbon. All of that, only 3% is man-made. This is a tiny, tiny fraction uh, of, of um, what, what is in the atmosphere is produced by man. It is really, uh, it's, it's not proven at all to suggest that use of fossil fuels, excessive use of fossil fuels, is generating significant climate change. I, well, I, think, or, I think you would agree, and I'm sorry to interject, but I think you would agree that we have to be kind to the planet. And I think we'd all agree with that when it comes the, to the, the environment. Pollution, absolutely. And by the way, I'm, I'm fully in favour of, of seeking out alternative sources of energy. Yeah, because we will eventually run out of fossil fuels. But I'm, yes, I, I'm sorry to be climate alarmist, but not, in 20, they not, reckon by not, 2050... Not for, not for quite some time. Let's not be alarmist about it. If we're going to go in this um, agenda of eliminating fossil fuels entirely by the year 2040, we're going to de-industrialize Europe. We're going well, to I, I, bring well, ourselves I, into let's be clear about it. I don't, I don't agree with the, this net zero idea because if we have net zero yeah. and no carbon, we'll all die. Anyway, we, we, we'll, 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 we'll starve. We'll, we'll go back into poverty. Now, while all yeah. this is going on, our main economic rivals, China, are laughing all the way to the bank. They're building a new, two new coal stations every week. You think when, the, when the, their turn comes to decarbonize, they're going to do it? You no, must be not. joking. And, I mean, and, and by the way, with Donald Trump, this nonsense in Europe because they're getting an economic advantage over us. And and we, the other, big, to, the other we, big economy, of course, is America. The other big economy is America, and, and the other big economy is America. And with the possibility yes. of Donald Trump being the next president, possibly again of America, yes. pretty, we all yes. pretty much know what he thinks of climate change. Uh, yes. So they're yes. not going to get involved. And so realistically, as somebody described to me, a recent scientist actually described to me, Ireland's efforts to get involved, you know, in reducing carbon emissions is like walking out onto a beach, removing one grain of sand and hoping that the water doesn't come in. <laughs> anyway, so... It, 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 it is laughable where it's not so tragic because we're actually doing ourselves enormous 
killing 200,000 cows, what's going to happen with our food supply? We're a food exporting country and we're going to be facing food shortages if we follow this down. No, they'll just, they'll just have more cows in Brazil and Argentina and they'll export the meat to Ireland. That's how it's going to happen. We're not going to produce them, you know. Okay, the other thing is about housing. Now, look, you've had the Labour Party promising a million houses. You might as well promise 10 million as promise a million because nobody's yeah. gonna, nobody is going to produce yeah. a million houses. you got Sinn Féin promising 120,000. you got Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael promising in around 80,000 in the next four or five years. I mean, we need more houses. There's no doubt about that. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, Sean Lamas had a great idea back in the 1970s, but somewhere along the late 1980s and 90s, we kind of stopped building them. We thought we had enough. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, previous yeah. governments have failed us miserably, and now we find ourselves in the last 10 years in a housing crisis. I mean, what's the answer to the housing crisis when you can't find enough people to build the bloody houses? I, I, well, that's that's one issue is, 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 is uh, an ability to supply but the other issue is affordability. Now, you know, we, we have we now produce a much better housing product. They're far better insulated, they're designed to last much longer. The houses we were building 30, 40 years ago uh, were not nearly as heavy as well insulated, they're much more difficult to heat, uh, and they didn't last as long. We're now producing a much, much better product that will last for much longer. But we have to reflect that in what people can afford to pay. People, ordinary working people on, um, in their 20s and 30s can no longer afford the cost of building your typical new house. So we've got to look at the finance method of financing housing. One of the um, proposals we put forward is that there be 60-year mortgages underwritten by government that would enable houses to be built over two to three generations so that people could afford to house themselves. Uh, we have to make sure that the excessive interest rates are not charged, but if it's underwritten by government, that would be one proposal we would A have. 60-year mortgage, Michael. I mean, you'd, you'd probably never own it. Because, I mean, realistically, no, most, it, people, most it, people don't it, buy their it, first it, house it, until they're 30. It, 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 the situation would be that obviously you've got to have equity building up in, in your house over a period of time. So if if, if over a six-year period somebody along that chain defaults, the equity goes back to the to, to the mortgage holder. I mean that that's got to be the case. The problem now at the moment is somebody defaults in their mortgage, they lose everything. We can't allow that to happen. But we, we have to respond to the situation. We're creating a much more expensive product and a product that will last much longer. Uh, the houses we built 40 years ago were designed to last 40 or 50 years. They were designed to last a single lifetime. We're now building houses that are designed to last for two, three, four generations. So it's not it's actually not fair. So are, are you suggesting that if, if you give somebody a 60-year mortgage and they pop their clogs in their 70s and they bought the house in their yeah. 30s so they still owe money on it, that then yeah. whoever well, 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 inherits you know, the house it, continues it, paying the mortgage? In, in any situation like that, uh, where somebody, where somebody, whether it's the, the the heir, the grandchild, or whatever, is no longer able to pay the mortgage and it must be sold, then the equity must return to the individual and not to the banks. That's the whole key to this. If you're going to go for that that lengthy mortgage period, what yes, about, of course, what about shared I, ownership. I mean, shared ownership is a, a yeah, kind of thing. Shared they ownership back. is a possibility. I don't think shared ownership is a good model as far as the Irish temperament is concerned because we're very proprietorial about our property. And I, you know, I've, I've looked at shared housing models in, in other countries and. Uh, you know, I'm not sure they really well, work. Well, we did it here back uh, in 2002, 2003. We had the shared ownership scheme where you had to, you couldn't sell it for seven years. Do you remember the thing? And yeah. the government had I half it, you had quite, half of it. I don't think it's quite the same as shared ownership. As I understand that that proposal, shared ownership is is, is a situation where you have two or three families and they share certain resources. No, 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 not at all. No, I'm talking about the state taking half the mortgage. So a mate of mine did it back I, in 2003. Enough, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I think the key to a lot of this is the state underwriting a mortgage to enable people to pay. It's, it's all about affordability, and affordability of housing is one of the 
reasons why we have such a demographic problem as well, and why why kids why, why young couples are not able to afford to have kids. The key factor in in the demographic decline of the West is the non-affordability of housing. And one of the reasons for the non-affordability of housing is because we're producing a much superior housing product to what we were producing 40 years ago. I said, what there's an expense involved in that, it's a much more long-term issue, and I think it's appropriate that that will reflect in the period well, of well, also, the, the, the big, the big, well, well, also one of the big problems with housing is the cost of raw materials has obviously gone up, the cost of labour has gone up, um, but unfortunately people's wages are not rising with the cost of living, so that's yeah. the next question I'm going to get to, which is the cost of living crisis. People are really feeling it now. The government has said last year there was a, what, 9.5% inflation rate. For for mm-hmm. the average person, it wasn't 9.5%. It's 25%. Yeah. They're paying 25% extra for the fuel in their car, 25% at least, or 50% extra for their electricity, for their gas, for their average bills, even for their bottle of ketchup. They know Everybody noticed a massive increase. It's not 9.5%. So they're now losing that money. Essentially, it's like taking 25% of their wages away from them. They haven't seen an increase, most people in the private sector, certainly in their wages, in the last five or six, five or six years. So how do we address the cost of living crisis, the energy bills, all of that stuff? Do we increase wages? Think, because that's realistically what we have to do to match it. But that yeah, might even push the, the prices up even higher. The primary driver of inflation has always been cost of energy. If you look at the first real modern day bout of inflation is the 1970s after the oil price. The, the cost of energy is, is the primary determinant of inflation. Now, what we have done in Europe over the last few years is the, uh, separate ourselves from our primary fossil fuel source, which is Russia. But by engaging in an absurd program of sanctions against Russia, instead of trying to sort out P- pointless sanctions, pointless bring sanctions, bring that war to an end. What we actually did was we, we allowed the United States to blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. Germany, our primary industrial mover, does not have access to cheap energy anymore. This is inevitably going to lead to massive inflation, and it has. Now, in addition to that, you have the carbon taxes, uh, uh, which are on fuel, which are on energy production. That's it, it's in. If you wanted to design a political system that gives rise to inflation. That's what the European Union has done. So that's where not a lot of it comes from. And we have to we have to start looking at that. But, but how will uh, you go to, but how would you change that as the Irish Freedom Party? How would you change that? Are you, what would you do? Just if you were elected tomorrow, let's say for example you were in government tomorrow, would you remove all those taxes? Uh, and yes, I would certainly remove carbon taxes. I, I think we've gone much too far, much too quickly, and we're only at the beginning of this process. I think you must re- get rid of carbon would taxes. Would you cap the cost if, of electricity? If you look at the proportion of our diesel and our petrol that goes to the government, and this impacts on rural people far more than urban people, by the way, it's, it's off the scale, and it's not necessary, and it's having a negative economic impact. Okay, but, Secondly, but, 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 but on that note, you, sorry, Michael, for, for interrupting you, but on that note, would you cap the cost of diesel? Petrol, heating yes, oil, gas, yes, electricity. Because realistically, as we know, the government think... are making a substantial amount of money at the moment on mm-hmm. diesel and petrol and heating oil because it has gone up so much. So they're making they're making VAT on all of that, obviously. They so they cry to us and tell us there's nothing we can do about it when they're actually making more money than they've ever made. I mean uh, they could the, easily the, reduce the, the VAT. There's a, there's a number of factors. What how much revenue is the government generating out of, out of petrol and diesel? That's the first that's one thing we can do straight away. Secondly, why are we still sanctioning our main source of energy, of oil and gas, which is Russia? Why aren't we trying to bring that wretched war to a close? It's a border dispute. We we have no dog in that particular fight. Let's sort that damn thing out. The Russian, the, the, the Russian energy production was crucial to the development of European industry for the past 20 years, and we put ourselves off from Russia is our natural hinterland in Europe. We've got to make friends with it. But we've allowed ourselves to be dragooned into the situation of seeing Russia as a natural enemy. 
which the United States is, uh, we don't, we, it's, it's not our natural energy. Russia was always part of Europe and Putin wanted to make it a friend of Europe, but they've been driven away from us. And we're now in a situation where we cut ourselves off from our natural energy and we've cut ourselves off from our hinterland. Now, I think Angela Merkel understood that. She understood the importance of Russia as a hinterland to Europe, but unfortunately, he has gotten out of control and uh, we, we, we have our step underlined uh, uh, imposing more and more sanctions on Russia, which, by the way, do nothing to whatever the Russian economy, the Russian economy is very healthy, but it has done enormous damage to Europe. And if you want to understand the reason why we have this high inflation, look at energy costs. And we're behind. Well, no, no, behind I, 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 I've spoken about it on the air before. The sanctions on Russian oil were pointless because all that happened was the Russians sold yeah. the oil at discount prices to China. And China yeah. are just repackaging it and sending it back to Europe yes. at premium prices. Right. It's pointless. Right. At a higher price. And, and if you want to know where inflation comes from, there you are. That's your answer. Okay. The, the other thing, of course, that, that's on everybody's lips at the moment is crime. Um, crime yeah. is a huge problem at the moment. And when we talk about just random crimes, people being beaten up in the streets, public disorder in general, uh, rapes, murders. Um, we've yeah. seen a massive increase in these type of crimes over the last, certainly over the last 10 years in particular. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you do to tackle that when you cannot get people to join on Garda Shia The numbers are quite limited. Mm -hmm. Nobody seems to want yeah. to join anymore. Personally speaking, yeah. I wouldn't like to be a guard. It's a dangerous job out there. So what do you do to, to tackle that problem? Uh, you know, you, you, you've got to look at it from a number of different perspectives. I think, undoubtedly, um, uh, one of the matters that feeds into crime is the level of immigration. But it's not the only one. Uh, I think there are many aspects of our society. We've become a less religious society. We've become a less family-based society. I think one of the main projects of uh, governments in Ireland over the past 30 years has been to undermine the sanctity and the independence of the family. Uh, I think you have, where you have large-scale family breakup, you will tend to have delinquency. Unfortunately, that, that, that's a simple factor. Uh, and are we doing enough to support families? Are we doing enough to support kids? Uh, and I, I question that we are. I think also when you import a large number of unvetted people into the country, uh, you are going to have an increase. I'll, I'll, come, I'll come back to that in a minute, right? Yeah. And I promise you I will mm -hmm. come back to that. But when you talk about, you know, obviously when you have family breakups, you have delinquency, and I'm not going to disagree with that. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely agree with you. The government is determined to break up the, the family or the mm -hmm. natural family. But in saying that, that's not going to resolve the problem we have today. That could be a future no, I, plan. I, I, and well, I think we should be putting no, money into childcare. We should I be think... encouraging the family. But, but that's not going to solve the problem we have today. And the problem we have today is the Garda are under-resourced. There isn't enough of yeah. them. They don't have enough cars. Yeah. They don't have the equipment they need. I mean, and I don't know if it's money. It couldn't be money. Sure, we've loads of money, allegedly. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm not altogether sure it's quite correct to say that there aren't enough guards. We have 16,000 guards at the moment. When I was young, we had about 4,500 guards. And we have to keep order quite well. I think there's an awful lot of guys being diverted. Now, you know, we, we do have serious crime, much more so now than we have in the past. But when you look at Helen McCarthy wanting to devote 550 members of the Garda Shea to begin with on the hate crime legislation, well, is that is that a proper use of Garda resources? I don't think Certainly so. Not, no. if, if they're going to be policing what we say and what we think, I don't think that's a good use of resources. Look, we, we of course we need to support the Garda. Garda Shea are very important and they must have support. Uh, and is, is there a quick fix to crime? No, I don't think there is. I, I think you've got to understand what the causes of crime are and you've got to deal with that. In, in the short term, yes, you must. You, there are certain circumstances where there's serious drug dealing, and that is happening in many of the smaller towns in our country. It may be necessary to give certain emergency powers to the Gardaí to deal with that. Unfortunately, that's not, not a very nice idea, but I think it, 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 when you're dealing with drug crime, when you're dealing with cartels, yes, it may be necessary to give certain emergency powers to them. Uh, that's something we, we have produced a policy paper on during the last election. And I see this in my own town of Ennis County, Clare, 
very small country town, but there are serious drug problems and there are serious drug gangs engaged in the most appallingly brutal acts of criminality in destroying whole neighbourhoods. And really, it may be necessary to um, put a task force in, which is quasi-military, to identify certain areas in regard to dealing with drugs, crime, you have to be given special powers. Not I'm, I'm assuming the Irish Freedom Party, by the way, don't agree with decriminalising Class A drugs like some of the other parties. No, we don't. No, no. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad. Glad to hear that, by the way. I'd hate to see anybody giving the green light to drugs. Uh, of course, let's come to immigration. Everything else yeah. that we've talked about, immigration has a knock-on effect on every, every one of those things. Getting a GP, for mm -hmm. example, when your population has gone up and you've suddenly had 200,000 extra people in the last two years, it's going to have a knock-on mm -hmm. effect on housing. It's going to have a knock-on effect on inflation. It's going to have a knock-on effect on everything because it's cost the state a huge amount of money. Um, yeah. There's... In my view, there's no doubt that we need to help people who need help, who are genuinely looking for help, who yep. are coming from war-torn mm -hmm. countries, etc., etc. But we have a problem, haven't we, Michael? Yeah, we do have a problem. The, the, the figures are absolutely extraordinary. If you, if Ireland now has, in accordance with the census, it has 20% of its population born outside the country. That's the highest proportion of any uh, country in the European Union. Sweden has a very similar population uh, pr proportion. Britain has 14%. The United States is 15%, and we've always tended to regard those as immigrant countries. We are now at 20%. This has all happened very, very quickly. And that 20% figure from the census of the population is likely to be an underestimate for the fact that a great many immigrants simply will not bother filling out the census form. So, and this has happened so quickly that it's taken people by surprise, and they're alarmed by it. If, if you, I was in Limerick canvassing last Saturday. And I can definitely say that on the main street, of the people that passed me by, I would say 50% were not Irish, 50% did not come from Ireland, and they, they don't speak English very well. That's astonishing in a, in a city like Limerick. But it's the same in a, city, in a town like Ennis. If I walked down the street, I might as well be the least. I was, I was up in Spain there some weeks ago. And you'll be conscious walking around that you're in a European city, but you're not conscious of that in most towns in Ireland. And, and I, can, I can see the difference and see the comparison because I live in Northern Ireland most of the time. Yes. And mm -hmm. um, when I walk around the streets of Belfast or walk around the streets yeah. of where, close to where I live, which is outside Belfast, um, you don't see that. And, and, no, and the no, reason no. is, and it's nothing to do with people in Northern Ireland are not welcoming or anything like that. It's because there's no attraction in Northern Ireland for no. uh, immigrants. In other words, they won't get as much money. They're not going to get the accommodation they would get. So they're not going to get, you know, the handouts, if that's what you want to use the word. Yeah, um, but I mean, when you when you consider it, <laughs> Roger Cogorman was advertising in newspapers abroad, in the languages of those things, advising them to come to Ireland if they need refuge. Advertising to bring sure, they were offering They were offering a front door <laughs> key within six weeks, for God's sake. That's right. That, that, was, that was never going to happen. Social welfare levels, which are sufficient that they can send money home to bring the relatives. I mean, this is what you're talking about. And it, it makes no sense at any level. While Irish people struggle to afford a house, while Irish people won't get those social welfare rates, we're, we're making our own people second class citizens. Why are they doing By the way, I'm agreeing with that. everything you're saying here, but here's the thing. What do you what mm -hmm. what could the Irish Freedom Party do about it? Because realistically, no, okay, the majority uh, of people are here now. You can't kick everybody back out again. If there is political will, there's quite a lot we can do about it. First of all, uh, under the Lisbon Treaty, we are entitled to a derogation under European Union uh, migration policy. Michal Martin disagrees uh, with that. You do know that. I beg your pardon? Michal Martin says he's taking legal advice in relation to that. Well, so let's, 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 let's hope he does the right thing. See, I don't, 
I don't think the women's in the government because they're simply, they're simply afraid of being called racist. They, they, they have this trope in their heads that they, if, if, they, if they follow our policies, which I think most of their supporters would want them to do, they're afraid of their lives will be called racist. But we have a derogation under European Union law, in the Lisbon Treaty, that we do not need to follow European immigration policy. Now, there's a bit more to it than just European policy. There's, there's the asylum, the, the United Nations Refugee mm-hmm. Protocol of 1967 as well. Do we really need to still be part of that? We can opt out of those if we want to. Now, that that particular protocol of 1967 allows that anybody can come and claim asylum and we must take them in. Well, according to the convention, we don't have to take them in. We can, uh, according to the convention, they must go to the first safe country. If they don't go to the first oh, safe yeah, country, the second safe yeah, country. Under EU law, that's, yeah. that's another aspect. Yeah. If, if, if we're not the first country, we don't have to take them in. But unfortunately, under the UN protocol, now, the UN protocol is not policed. So it's, it's, it's kind of funny that there's a lot of agreements that we're party to that the courts would probably uphold, but they're not fully policed. Uh, and the, the, the UN Protocol of 1967 is one of those, which does actually give some anybody who shows up, even without documentation and claims asylum, we have to take them in and process them. Now, one of the problems is our... Is it not to... illegal to arrive with no documentation? No, well, it's, is it it's, not it's, a criminal offence under the it law? Is it is illegal. Under the UN Protocol, we're still about to take them in. But look, I think we should withdraw from the UN Protocol. I think the, UN, the recent UN Migration Pact which redefines for a refugee as to be almost anything, anybody who may be under a threat of prosecution, not, or persecution, not just persecution, anybody who maybe feel that they're a climate refugee is almost a bind refugee. Now, this is an absurdity. I but but, but you see, but you, you, if you get into power tomorrow and you wanted to fix all this, look what's happening mm-hmm. in the UK at the moment. They're not even part of the EU. Uh, you got Rishi yeah. Sunak trying to fix the problem and they came up with yeah. the Rwanda solution a while ago. It goes into mm-hmm. the Supreme Court. I mean, yeah. th- there's a I lobby, the there's a lobby of NGOs out there. There's a lobby of people mm-hmm. out there will stop you yeah. at every it's single all, track. It's, 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 it's complex, but if you start taking radical action, right, we're pulling out of the, of, of the 1967 Protocol of Refugees. Well, we're, we're demanding our opt-outs under the European Union law, under the Lisbon Treaty, which we negotiated when we agreed to divorce the Lisbon Treaty. We can do that anytime. Now, yes, of course, you're going to get NGOs who make a lot of money out of the whole refugee crisis, and they're going to try to fight. But you've got to take them on. You can't allow yourself to be bullied by these people. And unfortunately, that's what happens to many government ministers. They have so many people who have a different mindset or without working within their departments to work so closely with the NGOs that they will not take these guys on. We will do that. We're not part of the political establishment. We're a new party. We will fight for the rights of the Irish people. So, and we will do it. And on, it's possible. On that note it's, it's well. not easy. It, 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 none of this is easy. And you okay, could, but you no, sorry, just on the note of the NGOs. Two weeks ago, Leo Varadkar turned around and said that they reduced it from seven days to zero for Ukrainian refugees to leave Ireland and go back on holidays because he believed some people were gaming the system, right? But he didn't use that term, but that's what the term I'm using. Um, now they've rolled back on that, obviously, because the NGOs started shouting and roaring again. And they've rolled back yeah. on that. They're now allowing Ukrainians to go home on holidays to a country where seemingly their life is in danger and go back to a country for up to three weeks almost over the Christmas period. I'm just wondering, would you have allowed that? Of course not. Of course, but this is not. I mean, the whole Ukrainian thing is insane to take in 100,000 people into this country. Many of these, I'm, I was behind a huge Jeep the other day and I couldn't see it. I mean, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian registration. Brand new Jeep, must be worth well over 100 grand. And these guys, they fly back to get their teeth done, they fly back for their holidays. These are not genuine refugees. This is nuts. It's nuts. And for me, Tom Martin, to say all these people are being bombed, they're not. There's no, hotels no, advertising. 80% of the country is perfectly safe. Absolutely, absolutely. But look, you know, Ireland as a neutral country, 
should be trying to sort out this war. We should be saying we're a neutral country. We can act as an honest broker between Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, this, but, but, but nobody would allow you to do that. You look, look what happened to Sabina Higgins when she even wrote a letter asking for peace. You know, for negotiations, but, for peace. What People say there shouldn't be negotiations. If we're, if, we're, if we're elected to government, we'll decide what we'll do and what we want to. We're not going to have a bunch of NGO uh, sympathisers in the department tell us what to do. And it's about time the government stood up to their own departments and decided who runs this country. Is the people who are elected or the permanent civil service? And, and you know, that's, that's a large part of our problem too. So, Michael, just finally, um, at the moment, how many candidates do you have in Ireland? Uh, look, the first election that's coming up is the European elections. We have a candidate in, in each of the three constituencies. I'm running in Ireland South. Herman Kelly is running in Ireland Northwest. They're both five-seater constituencies. So I think we have a good chance. This is this is the kind of election where a protest vote is is likely and is possible. And I think you're right. As I go around the country, I've been canvassing for the past five or six weeks now. The big issue on everybody's lips is immigration. Uh, even in, in small rural towns, you're seeing what's happening in our country. Uh, we well, can't you, Aaron, Aaron O'Reardon in September on the, the today, uh, Tonight Show and Aaron O'Reardon said that um, it wasn't a debate, it wasn't something that's coming up on the doorsteps. He's talking very different I am because every person that I speak to, it's almost number one, immigration. That's the first thing that they're concerned about. Uh, and yes, I, and I, I think that will be the big issue in the European election. And I think there's a real chance for the Irish Freedom Party. Jared uh, O'Connor is running in Dublin as a four-seater, but we have two five-seater constituencies. That are in a five-seater constituency, you need 16% of the vote to get elected. But a lot of people, the problem with the European elections for your average citizen in Ireland is, that, you know, you ask the average citizen in Ireland, who are our European MEPs? Most of them wouldn't even know. Um, no, well, no, because, they, well, because we don't see them too often, you know. Yeah, but what I'm saying to now, you know, one thing that's very important. What I'm saying to people is, European elections are a real opportunity to give give a protest vote, send a message to the government that you're not happy with what they're doing. And you, okay, and then what happens not, when, we, when we come to a general election next year? We got the local elections in June, general election yeah. maybe before the end of next year. I mean, mm-hmm. what do you recommend people do at this stage? Because people feel a little bit but, lost. You know, they feel it, a bit it, I, I, th- I think the first thing. The first thing, send a message out in the European elections. If we get a good vote on that, we're going to try and run a candidate in every constituency in this country and give you a real alternative to vote. Because you don't have it at the moment. As I say, it's a uni party. Sinn Féin, Fine Gael, they're the same party. In practically every aspect you can think of, they're both uh, highly pro-European. Do you think they're Sinn Féin both, have been a good opposition party? I think Sinn Féin are just more of the same, only worse. Mm. You know, yeah. and like every, every bad thing the government do, Sinn Féin say, why didn't you do it even more? You know, whether it's carbon taxes or whatever it is, you haven't gone far enough. You know, every attack they make against free speech, Sinn Féin says, why don't you do it more? And that's that's the, that's not opposition. You know, saying mm. the, the government haven't gone far enough is hardly opposition. There's no radical alternative to be provided to what the government is doing. We have a uniparty system operating in the country. And that's why the Irish Freedom Party emerged. The, the hate speech law, the free speech laws, which is not something we've discussed, that is a direct attack against our democracy. And Sinn Féin, if you think Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are bad, wait till Sinn Féin get into power and start corrupting our judiciary and corrupting our guardianship conduct. You will not be able to speak, you will not be able to broadcast a podcast like this in Sinn Féin. You're talking about, you're talking about communism know, being on our doorstep. My, my podcast is broadcast from Northern Ireland, not Republic of Ireland. Yeah. So. But they'll, look, they'll figure out a way of stopping you, my friend. I'm not, sorry, it's a say this, I think it'd be dreadful, but that's what they would do, you know. Like, look, we've seen how YouTube and Google have been able to censor people with their algorithms. By the way, I used to get regularly, you know, something like 90,000 hits on my YouTube channel. After January the 6th of 2021, that the, the guillotine came down like that, and it was stopped. 
mean, the ability yeah. these guys have to, to, to manipulate public voice, what people are saying in public, is quite extraordinary. Well, we, we, we saw that during the week with the um, a report that came out from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue. I don't know whether you, you saw it. It was that a top story. Yeah, it yeah, was a top story in all the news channels. So basically it was three people who put together a report. You know, three people who clearly have a left uh, liberal bias who put together a report. And by the way, they're entitled to their liberal bias, just as I'm entitled to my conservative bias. Um, but they put together a report like they, somebody elected them to do it. And it was run on RTE as some sort of official report. And essentially what it was was a report of misinformation, disinformation and hate speech and all that kind of stuff. But essentially it was just a report of people saying things they didn't like. <laughs> Oh, look, I was down in Limerick there uh, canvassing on the, on the weekend, and um, I, I, I can't announce where I'm going, because if I do, the, the NGO, the LGBT and trans law will be busting to prevent me from speaking. I'm, I'm assuming, by the, way, by the way, on that note, just before you get into that, I'm assuming that you wouldn't make puberty blockers available for anybody under the age of 18. <laughs> look, one, one of the, apart from uh, immigration, the second issue that I'm, I'm meeting under us a lot is young women in particular, terrified of the trans agenda in schools and the pornographic agenda in schools. They are absolutely terrified. What are they going to do to my kids when they get to the, their teenage years and they're confused as so many teenagers as well about their sexuality, they're confused when they're 13 or 14. And they're terrified of what's going to happen. And that's when I, when I, when I have that in my leaflet about we will uh, fight against trans activism, that's one of the things that attracts young women in particular. So certainly not, we, we, we would not be, obviously would not be fair with that. All right, well, look, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Michael, and I really appreciate Thank you. Very much. Show, so. uh, hopefully we can do this again as the, as the, as the campaign progresses. Uh, well, absolutely. Well, when we get closer Please. to the elections, I'm sure we have a chance again. Michael Leahy, Chairman and Spokesman of the Irish Freedom Party. Thank you very much indeed. And good luck in the elections if you don't speak to you before then, but I'm sure we will. Thank you okay. very much indeed. Thanks very much, Niall. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube, and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 085-100-2255. The Nile Boylan Podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms.